I'm Sergeant Vucetic, and this is Contemporary Security Studies. Today we're going to talk about gender and security. Feminists are fabulous as students of security because they're curious about power, about the way power operates and what it takes to sustain, to sustain any given set of relationships, whether between states, people, or uh, institutions. So whereas traditional security studies uh, is concerned mostly with states and institutions, uh, rarely with actual people. For feminists, by contrast, uh, the argument is that you can only understand how power operates if you're looking not at generic people, but digging further still and examining gender. Uh, Cynthia Enloe says, um, you know, we can, and any analysis uh, of politics inside or between states that ignores a feminist-informed analysis of gender is politically naive. So basically everything that we've discussed so far uh, in terms of power has been uh, politically naive because we, we barely mention gender. So gender is a term intended to explore the ideational, material, historical, and institutional uh, configurations of power that together contribute to the understandings about women, men, and masculinities and femininities. So these are the understandings that prevail in any given time or place, and we're interested in them. The ideas and assumptions that uh, that these understandings carry um, uh, can be exemplified in any number of ways, but we can here talk about uh, situations of armed conflict and political violence by way of uh, simply to illustrate this point. Uh, so here you have women and men as both active agents and victims uh, of conflict and political violence, but they're positioned uh, quite differently. Women have long been portrayed primarily as victims, while men are portrayed as actors and agents. So it's already you see a difference. This has implications uh, for both women and, and men. Women are seldom viewed as having held public power prior to the emergence of conflict or as having served as combatants. They're never seen as war criminals either. Um, as a result, uh, they may experience uh, uh, greater or lesser freedoms, depending on the context. So, for example, in terms of organizing uh, informal peace campaigns, um, uh, women women are uh, usually invited. But you know, when the time comes uh, for formal peace processes, uh, they're normally excluded from them. Same goes for. for you know, from various programs of disarmament, this demobilization, reintegration, all sorts of post-conflict society building uh, uh, efforts. And so, um, yeah, former combatants, uh, who are usually men, uh, they, they get access uh, to educational training and employment opportunities, you know, veterans uh, in, in many societies. Men, on the other hand, are presumed to have held power and decision-making authority prior to the emergence of conflict um, and, and to have been combatants and instigators of the conflict itself. Uh, this sometimes makes their motivation suspect when they become involved in efforts to bring conflict to an end. But men are the ones who are invited to the formal peace table uh, once, once it has been established, and they're the ones who benefit from, uh, from these uh, aforementioned disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration programs. Um, so, so these prevailing understandings about women and men and the material conditions of their lives uh, significantly shape their experiences in institutions, nations, uh, and, and, 
and social processes like armed conflict. So I just use this as a quick example. Those of you who've studied uh, any type of feminist theory did not need it. I mean, you understand uh, what gender or feminist informed gender gender analysis uh, uh, is and does. Uh, for today, we have two readings. Um, one is by Lenny Hansen, The Little Mermaid's Silent Security Dilemma and the Absence of Gender in the Copenhagen School. This one is about securitization. And the other one is by Sandra Whitworth. It's a chapter um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a volume by uh, Ken Booth on critical security studies in world politics. Uh, both both are slightly dated, but don't 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 be confused about that. Both are in fact classics. Uh, let's start with the with the Hansen piece. So Hansen is a professor of international relations in the Department of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen. Uh, she's also the project director of images in international security. Uh, and, and so this is a, a, an, an important endeavor and a theme that I alluded to uh, on the syllabus itself, mainly because I felt sorry that we couldn't study images uh, as a standalone uh, thing. Uh, but feel free to explore it uh, yourself in your blogs. Uh, it, it's a very productive uh, vantage point uh, from which to study and analyze security. Anyway, so going back to the Little Mermaid silent security dilemma. Uh, this is one of my favorite pieces in securitization literature, period, partly because of my, uh, I have a personal relationship with it. I was a student at the University, the Free University of Berlin in 2000 uh, when this piece came out uh, in Millennium, a journal, uh, and the local library didn't have it. The university library did not have it. And so I emailed Professor Hansen for a copy, and lo and behold, uh, she sent it to me uh, via snail mail, and I still keep the copy in, a, in the glorious European A, A, uh, A4 format, as Americans call it, and it's you know all all earmarked in and uh, full of my marginalia over the years. So the title is fantastic, um, and and captures basically the main argument and the, 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 the piece is about the inability of securitization theory to account for gender in its theorizing. I think it may have been one of the first, if not the first, critique from a, from a gender perspective of, of said theory. Uh, specifically, she, she, uh, she talks about, she urges securitization theorists to pay attention to the silence of those who are prevented, often violently, from speaking security, to put it in, in the simplest terms. Um, this partial account uh, of, of the Copenhagen School of the ability or inability to speak security is a problem because it creates a blind spot in terms of accounting for the place of women uh, and more largely uh, subaltern groups, so racialized minorities and so on, uh, in the process of securitization. Uh, so you'll recall from the previous lecture that I mentioned securitization, the securitization controversy of 2020, uh, which was about race. Well, Hansen, was in, Hansen herself was involved or interpolated into that controversy because, uh, yeah, basically she was accu accused of producing work that is blind to race and racism herself. To which she, she responded in the pages of Security Dialogue in a rather elegant way. Uh, and, and again, you know, if you're interested, to learn more about this, uh, check out further reading section of the previous week on the syllabus, as well as simply explore or ex explore said journal, Security Dialogue. Uh, under the right keywords, you'll find it all there. Um, and I'm happy to discuss this with you in the in the forum, uh, but here we won't we won't get into it, partly because uh, 
you kind of need to learn a little bit more about securitization theory, which is what we're doing today. And we will, in fact, have a, a reading on securitization theory and race uh, next week. So you will be able to uh, perhaps uh, wrap your hands around this uh, in, in a more systematic fashion. So going back to the assigned piece, uh, there Hansen's target is... Um, uh, is this thing called the Copenhagen School, uh, which is associated with folks such as Barry Buzan, Jab de Wilde, and of course Ole Weber, whose, whose work we read last week. Uh, Copenhagen is something of her hometown, so obviously she paid close attention to what was going on from the very beginning and was kind of seen as an insider critic of, of this research program, of this theory. And of course, securitization theory is just one aspect of the Copenhagen School of Security Studies. You don't need to know that. There's a whole bunch of critical security studies schools in Europe, Aberyst with Paris, etc. If you're interested, obviously we can talk about it in the forum, but I did not design it as part of the course. Uh, And certainly most of you, uh, uh, I mean, if you're interested, we can talk about it, but it it doesn't advance the plot that I have uh, set out for us. So, if you recall from Ole Weber's reading, uh, and in fact several other readings on the syllabus, securitization theory is premised uh, on a situation in which speak, speech act is possible. And what Hansen says here is that securitization theory um, uh, is premised on the necessity to speak in order to be a subject. So to speak security, you become someone worthy of consideration and protection by the state. Right? And so she takes the example of honor killings in Pakistan, highlighting how women face what she calls silent security dilemma. Right? So this is the piece. The silent security dilemma possesses two components. She says, on the, on the one hand, the dilemma is of a security of silence, which means that even though women might want to or need to speak security in order to become a referent object of security, they are socially and politically unable to do so, or might even face more insecurity if they do so. Right? The second component of the dilemma is what she calls subsuming security. This is pages uh, 297-99, which means that it's impossible for these women to fully become a referent object because that would require that gender be recognized as a distinct and located as a specific community within the societal sphere without overlapping with national, religious, and racial referent objects. So she talks about this broader uh, sense of, uh, you know, how we define community slash society. This page uh, 298. Yet, in the, on the next page, she rightly points out that there's an interlinkage between gender and other forms of identica- identification, right? And, and you cannot undo it in practice. And this is, you know, this is a basic point uh, of intersectionality that essentially goes back to, I don't know, 1978, Kumbahi River, uh, uh, River Collective Statement, for those of you who are interested. Um, and... Um, in black radical thought uh, uh, and, uh, and, and the origins of the term identity politics, uh, which of course are uh, now associated with the right-wing politics, but, 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 but originally they were, they're essentially a left-wing project. Anyway, happy to discuss that as well. So given the difficulty or even impossibility uh, women face in reporting their insecurity and becoming referent objects of security through speaking security, Hansen notes that uh, they're in a situation of security silence. That is to say, a situation, this is a quote, a situation where the potential subject of security has no or limited possibility of speaking its security problem. End of quote. Page 
294. This impossibility is linked to a specific context of oppression that is not taken into account by securitization theory, but it should be because of its implicit and explicit expectation that potential security uh, securitizing actors are living in, in a condition in which a form of speech act is possible, right? So silence, in other words, means an inability to voice. Pakistani women facing or contesting honor killings are sub subjected to even more risks if, if they try to raise an issue. So she remarks, um, page 295, the security strategies chosen by Pakistani women have, as a consequence, often been silence, denial, or if the incidents became, become known, flight. In other words, in these situations, the verbal act of speech, this her words, is disabled for these women. Even worse, exercising voice could place their existential security at additional risk. And I mean, not just in Pakistan. I mean, we can, she uses Pakistan just to, uh, as an example, we, we, we can talk about um, honor killings more generally or other types of ways in which you, you know, women talking means existential security risk. So, what, what she wants you to, to understand is that remind, re remaining silent, as they are silenced, uh, these women do not necessarily express, express, uh, sorry, express acceptance of their situation or of the specific social norms linked into honor killings. No, uh, they also do not offer an alternative position reaching to, to altogether the space in which they're positioned. No, the securitization framework assumes that silence is a lack an absence of some kind of negative connotations. But at this stage, women are deprived of a security strategy, voice through speech acts, that from the perspective of securitization theory would enable them to potentially become reference objects and therefore become worthy of, uh, of protection by the state. Right? So this lack of voice leads uh, the securitization framework to analytically engage with securitization theory at the level of the production of discourses rather than limiting oneself to identifying instances of securitization, right? And she, she rightly points out to the verbal limitations of speech act theory. And this, I mean, if, if you've read anything on, on language or how language became public or you, know, you, you would know about J.L. Austin, uh, who wrote in 1962, how to do things with words, uh, very influential book. Uh, so, to the essentially, uh, you, she, she says, well, you also have to integrate the body and the visual in an analysis of this production of, of discourses, right? Uh, and this, is, this obviously ties uh, to the project that I mentioned earlier, which she talks about um, uh, in, on images. Uh, so, more specifically, she brings in Judith Butler's conception of the performative body. And those of you who, who have studied feminist theory will know that but Butler is hugely important. Uh, and this should not be conflated with silence, right? Um, so here's page uh, 301. Can the body speak security even when the word slash text does not? Even in the cases of verbal silence, security might be spoken through the body. So since, since the time she wrote, there's been no shortage of work that looks at security as that which lies beyond spoken or written words and or takes into account the visual aspects of securitization. Yet the primacy of voice remains, whether in the light of the type of empirical cases chosen or in the actual primacy of the word over the image. I mean, I've done all kinds of work that uses discourse analysis and almost always I, uh, I prioritize uh, the word over the image. 
and it's a problem. But so so does most people. So do most people. So even when analytically concentrating on other modalities of expression, the securitization framework cannot do with an absence with an absence of voice. Silence is not an option. Should voice be abandoned, the only options left are to exit, or worse, in this in this implicitly liberal normative framework, to remain loyal to an alienating and even repressive social, political, international, or religious order. So turning back to securitization theory, we see silence as a technology of power. And we're going to talk about technologies of power next week when we talk about race. It's probably my go-to definition of what, it, what, is, uh, what is race. So in this sense, silence is an effect of silencing, uh, wh- whether by harming, threatening, or not listening, or not addressing those who are silenced. I, I, I know it sounds confusing, but read the conclusion on page uh, 308. Uh, think about it and, and, and tell me if she's right. Uh, so conclusion is pretty good, right? Uh, she says, uh, um, quote, security is not only a speech act, but embedded in the production of particular subjectivities, which then form the basis of what can be articulated as threat and threatened. So it takes a, st- it takes a, a step back, right? We're not talking about security. We're talking about subjectivities and the fact that security and subjectivity production are, 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 are uh, articulated together. Um, so... So yes, uh, it's it's a very good piece of feminist analysis of security, uh, and uh, yeah, tell tell me in the discussion forum, tell us uh, what this means for the usefulness of securitization theory, right? Is it is it all crap, uh, or or should some parts of it be uh, uh, redeemed for 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 the types of analysis that uh, gender uh, analysts are interested in? So, um, or I should say, feminist-informed analysis of gender. Now, let's let's turn to uh, the chapter by Whitworth, uh, "Militarized Masculinities and the uh, Politics of Peacekeeping." Uh, Whitworth was my uh, professor at York, where I did my MA, a highly reputable scholar in feminist IR and in critical security studies. And this chapter is about the Somalia affair, one of the darkest periods uh, in Canada's 20th century military history. Uh, uh, this event resulted, I don't know how much you know about this, I mean, she, she obviously explains it really, really well, uh, but uh, it, the, it's, it's an event that resulted in the deaths of two Somali men, the charging of a handful of soldiers, and eventually disbandment of the Canadian Airborne Regiment, a rapid reaction force of paratroopers uh, created in the 60s that actually traced its lineage back to the Second World War. Uh, so the pride of, of the Canadian Armed Forces uh, at that time. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm maybe uh, further context. The Canadian Airborne Regiment was sent to Somalia in 1992. This was a part of a UN humanitarian mission. Some of the Somali warlords resented the presence of foreign troops. Uh, Canada was part of, of, of a US led unified task force, UNITAF. Some of you have seen movies about this. Uh, it used to be sort of a bigger topic of discussion um, uh, about, you know, 15 to when I was a student, certainly here in Canada, uh, and 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 uh, these war, war, Somali warlords, uh, out of resentment, attacked relief convoys and rebuilding efforts, the U.S.-led ones. So then, in March in 1993, two Somalis were shot in the back by Canadian soldiers uh, while they were attempting to break into the base, which was a common thing at the time. And one of the men, Ahmed Arush, died. 
A week later, 16-year-old Shidan Aron broke into the Canadian compound and was captured. He was tied up and blindfolded and then punched, beaten with a metal bar, burned with cigarellos for hours. He was later found to have burns on his penis. Um, and then, uh, yeah, he was found dead by morning. His last words were, were Canada, Canada, Canada. So soldiers involved in the uh, torture of Aron took trophy photos of the abuse, a horrific series of pictures similar to those that led uh, the American military scandal uh, at Abu Ghraib uh, in Iraq a, a decade later. In fact, uh, uh, so Hansen has written on this uh, in, in some uh, later on um, when, in her project on, on the visual. So photos uh, taken and then, and then leaked, publicized. Uh, are the cause of the scandal. Uh, you could argue, because if we had never known what happened, there would have been no Somali affair. So the story began began to come to light uh, days after Aron's death, um, when one of the soldiers involved uh, you know, tried to hang himself with, himself with shoelaces in a cell after being arrested for his part in the torture. And later that year, the first charges were laid against soldiers in, in, in his regiment. Eight were court-martialed. I think four were convicted uh, and two charged with murder. But one of them served two years before being released. And, and the other guy, the guy who tried to commit suicide, experienced brain damage in this event and was uh, in, in the attempt to, to kill himself and was declared unfit to stand trial. So the most senior officer charged was a, acquitted of negl negligent performance of duties. And this history is yet to be fully written, of course, but we know, uh, what we know is that the regiment, as I said, was disbanded. Uh, the Jean Chrétien government at the time ordered an inquiry, which revealed a whole series of videotapes showing members making racist comments or participating in hazing rituals. Uh, the inquiry also showed that papers and computer logs had been tampered with to elim eliminate important information about what happened. Uh, the inquiry ended in '97. I think it had 150 plus recommendations uh, and, and a payout of $15,000 to Aron's family in, Somal in Somalia. So uh, for Canada, this was big news. Canadian soldiers until that point were often viewed uh, by the world as, as peacekeepers of choice. They certainly viewed themselves as peacekeepers of choice and the affair left the reputation of this country as a do-gooder, global Samaritan uh, nation uh, in tatters. So no, now what Withworth says in her piece is that most of the news coverage got it all wrong. Uh, these were not cases of bad apples in the Canadian Armed Forces, but of militarized masculinity and the use of soldiers. And she says, quote, people trained to destroy other human beings by force uh, in peace operations, right? So she says militaries depend on attracting young people, especially young men, to the idea of becoming real men through the initiation rituals associated with soldiering. So now, you know, some of you are, have experience in the, in the Canadian Armed Forces, know people who do, uh, and, you know, you probably know a lot about this. Uh, and, and I'd be curious to know what your reactions are to this piece. Um, so engage with her argument. So she says what militaries do is, is, is replace that, uh, that the, the, the basically bring about the certainty that, um, um, that, you know, about who you are is constituted through norms of masculinity, which privilege violence, racism, aggression, and hatreds towards women, right? So uh, what this means for students of critical security studies is that uh, a change of mission in an operation does not 
by itself transform the years of training and socialization that have gone into the creation of a of a quote unquote proper soldier. What this uh, what this suge suggests dramatically is that the skills of war are often quite at odds with those required for peace operations. It's often the non-military contributions which Canadian peace pe uh, peacekeepers make for which they are best remembered. Reopening of a local school, hospital, building parks for children, serving as mediators in difficult situations. And, and this means that we need to acknowledge that soldiers do not always make best, the best peacekeepers. Sometimes it is carpenters, mediators, doctors who best perform that function and who best contribute to a people's sense of meaningful security. So this takes us back you know, to week one discussions of what is security, uh, takes us to all kinds of discussions of human security we've had, uh, takes us to Ole Weber's piece in securitization theory, which he says, you know, security is best provided when we're not talking about security. And it also means that when we send soldiers on peace operations, they need to be soldiers who have been trained and encouraged to entrained, to understand that properly masculine behavior need not be dependent on misogyny, racism, and violence. So you need not soldiers not to be soldiers, or not just to be soldiers, but also kind of you know, anthropologists, good students of humanities and social sciences. Um, so what you could also say is that uh, this event, in a small way, contributed to a strategy called gender mainstreaming. Um, many use this, this term. It was adopted in the Beijing Platform for Action from the Fourth United Nations World Conference on, on Women in Beijing in 1995, another big deal when I was a student. Uh, and though many find this term we kind of long, um, it, it's, it, essentially it's intended to call attention to the importance of incorporating attention to gender through all aspects of a state's or organization's work and to move away from simply counting the number of women who are present. Uh, so under the Trudeau government, uh, this is a, a big, you know, the, the preferred term is GBA plus, gender-based analysis plus. And the idea is that, uh, the idea is sophisticated. It's the idea that uh, gender is a social construct, not a biological fact, and that the prevailing norms and assumptions concerning both women and men will differ across time and place. And mainstream mainstreaming uh, views gender as, a, as shaped by cultural, class, religious, and ethnic differences and recognizes the power differential between women and men, the fluid nature of those differences, and that these differences are manifest in a variety of, of ways. So, you know, you can go to uh, any, practically any department of the government of Canada and you'll find an appropriate website uh, on GBA Plus that talks about exactly this. So gender mainstreaming has also had some clearly identifiable impacts on various international actors. The UN uh, passed Security Council Resolution uh, 1325 uh, on women, peace, and security uh, in 2000. Uh, I mentioned this earlier uh, in previous lectures. This is the WPS agenda. Some of you are interested in it. Our students here at API have traditionally been interested uh, in this problematique. And the Security Council is known uh, more for establishing peacekeeping missions or sanctioning the use of force in global politics. Um, and it's the only body in the UN system that can pass resolutions that are binding on the member states of the UN. So its WPS resolution uh, is important because it notes that women and children account for the vast majority of those adversely affected by armed conflict and increasingly those who are targeted by combatants in those conflict conflicts. 
and the resolution called for the incorporation of a gender perspective into peacekeeping operations and in the negotiations of peace agreements. It also called for the greater inclusion of women uh, in peace operations and called upon all parties to armed conflict to find ways to protect women and girls from sexual and gender-based violence during conflict. Um, I have a fa fabulous student uh, at Dalhousie, PhD student, Andrea Lane, who's working on a dissertation that looks at uh, precisely some of these issues, uh, uh, specifically the great inclusion of women in peace operations, you know, what, you know, what that does, whether it's hypocritical or not, to what extent can we critique it productively. Um, and and there's so many questions here that are related to arms trade as well, as we will talk about, in fact, in this class. In a, in a subsequent lecture. So in addition to underscoring the pervasiveness and effects of militarized masculinity within issues of international security, uh, Whitworth's piece is very good uh, in busting some of the contradictions of one of Canada's core myths, uh, which is peacekeeping. And you will recall from a discussion of ontological security from an earlier week in this class that this is a good example of of rupture of state autobiography. Canadians have never been uh, uh, sort of accused of, of having their soldiers uh, commit atrocities against civilians. That's the story, right? That's the narrative. They did not have any public experiences that corresponded to, say, the United States-Vietnam War, uh, to attacks like the My Lai disaster or the kind of cultural reflection as was witnessed in, in post-Vietnam United States. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, there are no novels, documentaries, Hollywood-produced movies. Of course, after Afghanistan, this is different here in Canada, but we're talking about the 90s. And, uh, and, and at that time, the, 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 the expression was, Americans fought wars, but Canadians made peace. And, uh, yeah, this notion was, uh, was blown up. Uh, a soldier, a Canadian soldier, was not this benign, altruistic, morally superior figure. Uh, this was, uh, in many ways, uh, unthinkable. Uh, and and Withworth co quotes another feminist scholar, uh, Shireen Razak, who, who writes, quote, Canadian naivete and passivity as a nation constitute a narrative of innocence that blocks accountability for the violence in Somalia, just as it blocks accountability for racist violence within Canada. Right, uh, and and what is interesting here is to explore how such events bec become memorialized or semi-forgotten. What what effects this has on Canada and how it uh, uh, how it tells its uh, story of itself. Um, so so this is perhaps you know another thing you can react on. Uh, so the, these myths of peacekeeping, as well as myths of Canada as uh, as, a, as a country of peace, order, and good government. Uh, this is all security. This is what makes this uh, uh, session interesting uh, because it brings together uh, gender but also questions of ontological security and, and finally race. Um, so so lots, lots of food for thought for today. Uh, and I went over 30 minutes and I said I, I wasn't going to do that. So I'll stop here and I'll thank you for your attention and we'll talk more um, later on. Take care and until the next lecture.